We pick up our journey through 1 Peter back in chapter 1, verse 17. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In our last two sessions, we spent a tremendous amount of time identifying and clarifying the concept of judgment as it appears here in chapter 1, verse 17. Remember, this judgment is not a judgment in regard to our salvation. Our salvation is sealed, settled, sure, secure, and cannot be stripped away by the trials of life. But our hope, the bedrock guarantee of a future inheritance rooted in a past event, our hope carries with it behavioral consequences in the here and the now. As we have said, belief begets behavior. Character is manifested in conduct. How we represent God here, how we reflect his name here, carries consequences there. Therefore, and as we have said before, whenever you see the word therefore, ask yourself, what is therefore? Therefore, on the basis of, as a result of, Peter challenges these suffering saints here in verse 17. Conduct yourselves in fear. The word, the Greek word is phobos, from which we get our word phobia. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying a healthy fear of embarrassing or defaming God's name here motivates, inspires, and challenges us to behave in a manner worthy of him because we know our conduct here has consequences over there. So our behavior is inspired by A, the glory to come, and B, the judgment to come. I want to take you back to a passage we explored last session. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 10, Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devotely and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Notice Paul is saying, look, we've set an example of behavior. We have modeled for you how character should move our conduct, how our belief begets our behavior. We did not just tell you this, we demonstrated it by our very lives. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk 
character, conduct, belief, behavior, attitude, action. So you would walk. That is that everything about you, not just the steps you take, but the life you live, how you would walk worthy, that is a walk that honors, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you, present active indicative, into future tense, uh, a future idea, his own kingdom and glory. So Paul says, we have demonstrated to you how our hope, our faith, our personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ is to be lived out in our character and our conduct every moment of every day. We've demonstrated it to you, and now we've encouraged and begged you to follow the example we have set before you. Why? Because our behavior here carries consequences over there. So Paul says there ought to be a healthy fear. That is a, a phobos, a fear, that has the idea of carrying in your heart a grave concern over offending God by your conduct. And that's really what he is talking about when he's talking about fear. That is a grave concern of offending God with our character and our conduct. The Hebrew equivalent of phobos or phobia is the Hebrew word yira. And it, it sheds some light on the principle being expressly uh, presented by Peter. In the 34th Psalm, in the 34th Psalm, the psalmist picks up on this very same idea, how our behavior, good or bad, carries with it a blessing or a curse. And because we are seeking to represent God, because we carry this fear, this grave concern of offending God with our conduct, the psalmist says in that fear, there is the understanding there are some things we should do and some things we should not do. And the psalmist identifies them in Psalm 34, verse 11. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I will teach you about this grave concern over offending God in your conduct. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. These are two things that an individual who's concerned about offending God will not do. You will not use your tongue for evil. You will not use your lips for speaking deceit. Depart from evil, that is, leave, get away from, depart from evil. There are some things we should not do, but there are also some things we should do. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, blessing or curse. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. That's the blessing. 
the face of the Lord is against evil doers to cut off the memory of them from the face of the earth. That's the curse. The righteous cry and the Lord, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. That's the blessing. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Or song, the second song, a messianic song. But at the end of that messianic passage, picking it up in, in Psalm 2, verse 11, as a result of God having sent a redeemer, an anointed one, the psalmist writes, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling, that's fear. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath, remember, good, bad, blessing, curse, his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. There is the concept, even in the Old Testament, that there is a healthy fear of God, a grave concern over offending God in our conduct. That principle was established in the Old Testament, and it carries over into the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul writes to the Corinthians, Therefore, having listed already the things that God has done for them in Christ and the comfort and security they have in him. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh. Put away all of those things. Defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness. Remember, holy, distinct, different, unique, separated and set apart for a sacred purpose, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You are perfecting holiness. You are setting your part, yourself apart as different, distinct, unique, and set aside for a sacred purpose in the fear that is a grave concern that you are offending God and your character and your conduct in the fear of God, or Philippians chapter 2, that great Christological passage in the first part of Philippians chapter 2, where Peter talks about Jesus, who although equal with God, laid aside all of those things and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. As a result of that, Paul writes to the Philippians, picking it up in, cha in chapter 2, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then he continues, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, here is the key phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What in the world is Paul saying? Well, he's saying to these Corinthians, 
let the inevitability of standing before God on that final day keep you moving forward in your desire to become more like him. In one of our sessions, we talked about salvation being a process, that there are stages to our salvation experience. Our journey begins with justification. That moment when we recognize we are sinners in need of a Savior, that there was nothing we could do in and of ourselves to save ourselves, but God loved us, Jesus died for us, and forgiveness from our past and hope for our glorious future was available to us if we would put our faith, hope, and trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross. And the moment we did that, we were justified, made just as if we never sinned in the eyes of God. But that is simply the conception of our salvation experience, not the culmination of it. At the end of our salvation journey, there is that stage of glorification. John wrote in his epistle, Beloved, we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. That is the stage of glorification. But most of us live our lives in between. We have repented of our sin, placed our faith in Jesus, made him Lord of life. So we've experienced that justification. We've been made just as if we never sinned in the eyes of God. But because we are here and you're watching this session, <laughs> we know you've not reached the point of glorification, where you're transformed in the likeness of Christ because you see him just as he is. Most of us are in between those two stages or experiences. And that is the process of sanctification. And that is what Peter is, uh, Paul is talking about here in Philippians chapter 2, when he says that we are to work out our salvation with fear, a healthy, grave concern of offending God in our conduct, that we are working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul is saying, because we have this healthy fear of God, this grave concern of offending him in our conduct, we will, moment by moment, day by day, seek to be conformed to the image of Christ in our character and our conduct. That is what Paul is referencing. Because of all that Jesus has done for us, as he outlined it at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, the result of that should be our deep burning desire to be made more like Christ in our character and our conduct. Which brings us back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Peter says, as a result of all of this, conduct yourselves in fear a grave concern over offending God in our conduct. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth. And then he continues in verse 18. Knowing, what do we know? I'm glad you asked because Peter's going to tell us. 
knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter says we know, we don't think, we don't hope, we don't guess, we know that we were not redeemed, that is bought back, and I'll talk about that word in just a moment, by what we do, by the former life we live. We were not redeemed, bought back, made right with God through those things, but we were made right with God because of the price Jesus paid to buy us back. And that leads us to the word we see right there in verse 18, that word redeem. It is actually a combination of two Greek words, meaning to loose or to set free by way of a payment or a price. The purchase comes, or the purchase uh, that we have comes by way of ransom. We did not earn it. We did not pay for it. We cannot be worthy of it. But there was a price paid to buy us back. And it is Jesus who paid that price, who redeemed us, paid the price to buy us back. And this principle goes all the way back to the book of Exodus, in Exodus, the 14th chapter. God had sent Moses back into Egypt to lead the Hebrews out. Not only was Moses called to lead the Hebrews out, but they were called to lead the Hebrews not only out of Egypt, but to God. And so God, through Moses, had instituted a series of plagues to get Pharaoh's attention. And after each plague, we are told in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart. That is a layer of callous builds up over his heart. God shut it in. And finally, the last plague was to be that of the death angel passing through the land. And so every Hebrew family was instructed to get a spotless, unblemished lamb. And they were to bring this lamb into their household for four days. Now, all of us understand little lambs are cute. Even in our generation, when a baby is born, somebody will buy a little stuffed lamb to put in that crib. Lambs are cute. And the children in those Hebrew households would instantly fall in love with that little lamb. They would give it a name. They would fight over who got to sleep with that lamb. That lamb became a part of the family. And then in Exodus chapter 12, we are told beginning in verse 6, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month 
Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Can you imagine? This little lamb has been in the house for four days. The children have become attached to it. They take it down and they have it slaughtered. All the horror. The children are crying. That lamb was killed. And in verse 7, Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And many of us say gross. <laughs> and you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So they would take the blood, from this little lamb, and they would sprinkle it on the doorpost. That night, the death angel passed through the land. That is where we get the term Passover. And wherever blood was found on the mantle, the family inside was spared. Wherever no blood was found on the mantle, the firstborn male in that son died. A beautiful illustration of what Jesus would ultimately do for every single one of us on the cross. In fact, Paul picks up this same imagery in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. Remember they used unleavened bread for the Passover feast? As you are, in fact, unleavened, for Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The writer of Hebrews did not worry about hiding what he had to say about that imagery in the Old Testament. He comes right out with it in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
So the writer of Hebrews is taking us all the way back to Exodus chapter 14 and saying to us what was symbolized in Exodus 14 is exactly what Jesus has done for every one of us at Calvary. He was our sacrificial lamb, our Passover lamb. We were destined for death. But when God on the day of judgment passes over us and he sees on our lives the blood of the lamb, we are spared. The conception of it in Exodus chapter 14, but the climax of it, praise God, in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, a great passage. John is exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He's carried up and he gets a vision of glory. And he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly. Why did he weep? Because as long as that scroll was sealed, sin would continue to reign. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. So John lifts up his eyes, looks through his tears in great anticipation of seeing this great lion representation of the tribe of Judah and is shocked at what he sees. In verse six, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb. Not a lion, but a lamb. The Greek Greek word is arneos, a little pet. Lamb. In Exodus 14, what kind of lamb did they get? A little lamb. In Revelation chapter 5, John says, I turned and I saw an arneos, a little pet lamb, standing as if slain. He's been killed, but he's not laying, he's living. A lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, all authority, all sight, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The conception of the lamb, the Passover lamb in Exodus 14, the climax of it all in Revelation chapter 5, because Jesus is our Passover lamb. In fact, John the Baptist seeing Jesus walk along the the shore said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. (coughs) Our Lamb, our sacrificial Lamb, the one whose blood was sprinkled on the mantle of the cross and all of us who come beneath that are protected by the blood on the mantle. Wow. In fact, 
after this particular session. We're going to post for you a sermon that focuses on Revelation chapter 5, the last action here on which we'll explain this great passage in greater detail. But here's what I want you to understand. Times may be tough. You may find yourself in the midst of a storm. The wind may be blowing. The rain may be falling. And everything in your life that is not nailed down seems to be coming apart. But remember this. God will not ask anything of you that he has not already done a thousandfold for you in Christ. Hang in there. Keep on keeping on. Because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We will see you next session. Ultimately, our desire is to provide a two-tiered approach to the study of God's Word. You have joined us for one tier in that approach, which is the verse-by-verse study of God's Word. But we also want to provide a tier that encourages you through biblical preaching, where we walk through a passage of Scripture, greater application in the process. I hope you will enjoy these along the way as we try to continue growing you in God's Word to take you deeper in your faith.